Um, it's a pleasure to uh, be with you this morning and to be able to open up God's Word um, for us all uh, and study it together. So as we do that, let's, let's just start in, in praying to our Heavenly Father. Dear Lord, we pray that we would, as we open your words, come with hearts that are ready to hear and ready to listen and ready to be challenged. We thank you that Christ uh, is our treasure and he can offer so much more than this world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning is Luke, chapter 16, and we're going to start uh, at verse 1. We're going to read it all the way uh, to verse 15. So uh, Luke 16, starting at verse 1, that's page 1054, if you're using the church Bible. This is Jesus speaking. He said also to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm I'm not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So if you've been anywhere near the British press in recent months, uh, you'll most likely have seen plenty of this man on the screen. This is uh, Nigel Farage. Now, he's, he's something of a divisive political figure in the UK, and the reason he's been featuring so heavily in the press recently is because of uh, the private bank, Coots, who recently closed his bank account. And the reason Coots gave was that Nigel was now too poor to receive investment advice from them. He didn't reach their eligibility criteria. Now, it turns out that Nigel's account was closed for perhaps other reasons um, than how much he had in his bank account. But the story goes to show that these private bankers, they won't give advice to anyone. You have to meet their eligibility criteria before they're willing to do business with you and offer you investment advice. 
Well, folks, if you're someone this morning who can't get investment advice from a private bank, then I've got some good news for you. Because this morning, we're going to take investment advice from Jesus himself. And crucially, this advice is for every one of us, whether you earn £50 a week or £50,000. Just look at who Jesus is speaking to in verse 1. His disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, not necessarily the high and mighty in society. So this morning, we're going to look at the topic of money. And we can see that Jesus gives us advice as to how we can make investments that will produce the maximum return. Whether you have a tenner uh, or you're investing 10,000. So, Nigel Farage, if you're listening online, this advice is even for you. <laughs> Let's get stuck in. Jesus tells us a story. It's a parable, which on the face of it is pretty straightforward. It's not allegorical. Uh, there's no hidden meaning. And we meet a rich man. And his manager, who's in charge of looking after, that's managing, his master's estate. And the parable starts with a confrontation. The manager is called into his boss's office, and it wasn't good news. He's told in no uncertain terms that he's incompetent and being fired. He's told to wrap up his affairs and leave. The manager leaves the meeting. I imagine feeling sick in the stomach. And as he trudges down whatever the first century version of a corridor was, he has all sorts of thoughts going through his mind. And the main thing he asks himself is, what next? He's been turfed out of his cushy white-collar job. He has no reference, therefore no hope of getting a similar job elsewhere. Manual labour doesn't suit him with his soft hands. And the thought of begging on the street, well, that wasn't even worth considering. So the manager comes up with a plan. Look at verse 4. He's going to use the short time he has left to set himself up for a job after uh, life, or for life, sorry, after the job. And he decides to curry favour with his master's debtors so that when he's unemployed, he'll have people who will owe him one. He'll have friends on the outside who will make sure he's okay. And so he calls people into his office one by one. Uh, Maybe this is a time when in-person meetings were still a thing and agrees to reduce their debt. One man owes 100 measures of oil. His debt is quickly halved to 50. Another owes 100 measures of wheat. His bill is reduced to 80. Now, Bible scholars have all sorts of interpretations about what exactly is going on here. Uh, Is this manager writing down debts fraudulently? Is he just removing the interest or perhaps his own commission? Uh, We could take up the rest of the sermon looking at these interpretations. But to be frank... It will be rather boring, and I think of much greater value in our short time to get to the heart of Jesus' point. Um, I've put some references at the bottom of the sheet if you do want to explore these sorts of ideas in more detail in your own time. But however you interpret the exact mechanics, what's clear is the manager is using his temporary resources to create future goodwill for himself. So the question is, how is the master going to react? When Jesus tells parables, he often uses the authority figure in the story as the one who gets to give the verdict. So the reaction of the master is crucial to understanding the point that Jesus is making. And we expect the master to be furious, to lambast the manager for his dishonesty, but no. Here's the big surprise in verse 8. The manager commends the dishonest manager. Well done. You acted shrewdly. I'm impressed with your foresight. 
and ability to plan ahead. So that's the parable. And it's a confusing one, isn't it? Uh, Why is Jesus holding up this dishonest manager as our example? And to properly understand the point, we need to be clear as to what Jesus is commending about the master's behavior. Look at verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So the character that's being commended is not the manager's dishonesty, but his shrewdness. More to the point, the reason the manager is to be admired is because he had the foresight to plan ahead. He uses his final moments of control over his master's estate to invest in life after the job. A shrewd move. Yeah, here's what's so clever about the parable. On the one hand, Jesus is using this manager as an example for us of shrewd behavior. Yet he also uses this parable to contrast how the world invests in the future with how Christians should invest in the future. The manager in this parable is flawed. He's dishonest. Jesus describes him as dishonest. He's described as a man of the world, which hints that he has no thought of life beyond the grave. And so because he has such a small view of his future, his shrewd behavior is always going to reap limited rewards. Now contrast that with the Christian, the sons of light. The Christian perspective of the future is so much bigger, so much more glorious. Because of Jesus, his death and resurrection, we have the promise of eternal life. We can make plans that go beyond the next five or 20 or 50 years left here on earth. The Christian message says that Jesus is coming back to restore the world and reign at the right hand of the Father. And so when we look into our future, we see the whole of eternity stretching before us. In contrast to the dishonest manager, our shrewd behavior means investing in a future as part of God's eternal kingdom. Jesus is saying, sure, the manager shows shrewdness, but do you know what's truly shrewd? Invest in something that will last beyond this life. Use your money with eternity in mind. And Jesus spends the rest of this passage showing us what it looks like to use money shrewdly. And spoiler alert, the way the Christian is to invest is radically different to the way the world invests its wealth. First then. Directly off the back of the parable, Jesus tells us to use our temporary wealth to invest in eternal relationships. Verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, that that is worldly wealth. And so when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus is at great pains to emphasize why this investment is so much shrewder than any investment advice the world will offer you. He first reminds us that worldly wealth will one day disappear. Did you notice the phrase uh, he uses, when it fails? Not if, not maybe, but when. He then goes on to remind us the relationships he wants us to invest in will last into eternity. They may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So this is true shrewdness. Trading in something that will fail for something valuable that will last. 
Jesus is calling us to invest in eternal relationships, to use our money in such a way that ensures that when we get to heaven, there will be a welcoming committee. Now, of course, how you use your money is not the only reason people will have for welcoming you. Maybe you prayed for them, walked alongside them as a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe you were even the one who introduced them to Jesus. But isn't it interesting Jesus doesn't dismiss how we use our money as meaningless. Quite the opposite. He says that we can use our worldly wealth to grow our heavenly welcoming committee. What does this look like in practice? Well, I suggest it means two things. First, and perhaps most obviously, it means investing in people now who are going to be in heaven with you. Sharing your earthly resources with Christians in need. It means being generous with your church family and those Christians further afield. There are great charities out there uh, focused on looking after Christians in need. And the Budge would be happy to recommend some so that you can give generously to people you'll be spending eternity with. But secondly, I think it means using money so that more people will make it to heaven with you. Investing in a way that helps others hear the message of Christ. Using your money in direct support of gospel mission. Let me introduce you to a man called Nicholas Winton. Just before the outbreak of World War II, Nicholas organized the rescue of 669 Czechoslovakian children who are destined for Nazi death camps. He brought them over to the UK in an operation known as Czech Kinder Transport. Now, Sir Nicholas passed away some years ago, but before he died, I've got a little video, if it works, just to show you something that happened. All the letters. Back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. (laughs) And it was just so wonderful, so terribly, terribly touching. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton. If so, could you stand up, please? When we get to heaven, first and foremost, our gratitude will fall on Christ. He is our saviour and rescuer. 
He's the reason we're there. He's Anicholas Winton, if you like. But here's the thing. Because Christ invites us to partner with him in mission, we can be part of someone's salvation story. The gratitude they will have for Christ will surely overflow into a gratitude for those who shared the gospel with them. The gospel worker who introduced them to Jesus. The person who prayed for them. And the person who sacrificially gave and meant that the gospel could reach them. Just think of the welcome you'll receive from that person when they hear the part your generosity played in helping them find Christ. Surely that's a shrewd investment. So I think that's the first one and the first application that Christ is telling us. Secondly, he tells us in verse 10 to 12 that we're to use our temporary wealth in a way that's faithful and honest. In contrast to the dishonest manager who was willing to do whatever he could to secure his future, Christians are told to be trustworthy and honest with our money. Verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? How we deal with our money will demonstrate to our Heavenly Father that we can be trusted with something far greater. Or or to put it another way, if we can be trusted with something as insignificant as worldly wealth, then how, sorry, if we can't be trusted with something as insignificant as worldly wealth, then how can we expect God to give us responsibility for things of true value? As a boy, I have fond memories building sandcastles on the beach with my dad. We'd build these mighty forts, carve intricate windows and doors, spend time creating elaborate defense systems. He was in the army. Uh, But as we built these castles, I was always hyper-aware that the thing we were building would shortly be reduced to nothing. The tide would shortly come in, and even with our amazing defenses, would sweep it all away. In some ways, looking back at it, it was all a bit pointless. But imagine if my dad had turned around to me and said, Pete, I've got a test for you. We know the tide is going to sweep the sandcastle away. But in the meantime, if you can prove that you can look after it, I'll reward you by giving you a real house of your own. I I never got this offer, just to put it out there. (laughs) But imagine if I did. Well, suddenly my efforts with the sandcastle would take on an entirely different meaning, wouldn't they? The sandcastle itself would still disappear. But I would have an opportunity here to prove myself as trustworthy. And it's not a perfect illustration, I admit that. But I hope it goes some way into showing what is going on in these verses. If we want Jesus to entrust us with true spiritual riches that will last into eternity, then we need to first show that we can be trusted with our temporary, earthly wealth. As a church, we would love it, wouldn't we, if God were to entrust us with the soul's of more people who live in the area. Many of us would love God to directly use us in bringing others to faith in Christ and helping them grow as a Christian. But here's the challenge. It's a hard one. We can't expect God to entrust us with such incredible responsibilities if we can't first show that we're trustworthy with things of less significance. Things like our money. 
Now, I'm not saying that the reason you haven't seen your friend come to faith is because you're untrustworthy with your money. Absolutely not. Thankfully, God does not operate in such a linear fashion. He's a gracious God who works wonderfully through weaknesses and failures to bring others to Christ. However, there is still a challenge here, isn't there? Many people view money as their security for the future. Money represents provision and success. And so if that's your view of money, then naturally we want to cling on to it for our own well-being and comfort. Yet in order to show Jesus that we can be faithful in our money, uh, with our money, we need to put it to good use. And in the context of this parable, that means using it shrewdly to invest in eternity. So can I humbly just challenge us with this? Are you tempted to cling to your temporary wealth? Does it act as something of an insurance policy so that should Christ fail, then at least you won't have missed out on anything in this life? Or does your generous use of money demonstrate that you are ready to be trusted with something of true importance? If, as a church, we want God to entrust us with the gospel, if we want him to entrust us with the salvation of more souls in the neighborhood, then we're challenged here to show our Heavenly Father that we can be trusted with little things. So let's show him, through our use of money, that we find security in Christ alone. Let's use our money and resources in a way that's faithful to Christ. And finally, let's turn to verse 13, and the last instruction that Jesus gives us. It's part instruction and part warning. Verse 13 says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one, and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus has spent time talking about our use of money. Clearly, how we use our money is important. It has eternal consequences. We're to take it seriously. We are to put it to work for the benefit of God's kingdom. But here, right at the end of this passage, is Jesus slapping a big label right across your money, and this label says, handle with care. Even if you're seeking to use your resources to see God's kingdom grow, be aware that you're dealing with something incredibly dangerous that has the power to control you. And Jesus' overarching warning about money is this. Don't let money master you, because you can't serve two masters. A few years ago, I met up with a friend of mine in the pub. We trained together at the same law firm. He'd since moved on. I asked him how he was getting on with the new job, and he looked up and said, Peter, it's terrible. We chatted about it, and I found out that the crux of the problem was this. He was expected to work for two bosses, two bosses with competing priorities and clients, two bosses who both wanted him to work exclusively for them, something I think they probably needed to work out between themselves. And he was being pulled in two directions, The more he tried to keep both partners happy, the more he fell behind with his work. And it got so bad that that he'd been pulled into a meeting room by one of the partners and had been asked the question, rather unprofessionally, in my humble opinion, who are you going to choose, me or them? And I wonder if we often try to live life with two bosses. Perhaps we think we can balance it out, a bit like a tightrope walker with two counterweights, God as the boss of spiritual matters, your insurance for eternity, your money, 
as boss day to day, making sure you have a life now that's comfortable, enjoyable. A few words of qualification before we go on. We all go through periods of our life where we need to have a material focus. For example, at the point of you know, purchasing a house, managing investments, buying a car, paying back student loans. You know, we do need to buy clothes for our kids, food for the dog. These things require attention and mean spending our money. Furthermore, having money, even lots of money, doesn't necessarily mean that money masters you. There are wonderful examples here, here at the Barge of materially wealthy people demonstrating through their sacrificial giving and generosity that it is God who's their master. However, I wonder if many of us go through life hoping that we'll never be uh, in a position where we're forced to answer that dreaded question, who do you choose? But this is the very question Jesus is asking in verse 13. Now, if there wasn't a verse 13, I suppose we could trick ourselves into thinking that because we've given generously to gospel work, we've satisfied the money test. Big tick. We've put something in the eternal deposit box, and so we can crack on and enjoy life with the comfortable sums we've left behind and kept back. But Jesus' question in verse 13 is so timely. It shows us that at the end of the day, this is a heart issue. This is a question of who we worship. Who does our heart long for? Is it God or is it money? So how we use money is ultimately an act of worship. Our generous giving is less about the amount we give and more a way of showing God that he is all we need to rely on. It's a way of saying, Lord, you've given me so much more than money can buy. I choose you. Practically, I know it can be difficult to test where your heart's at. It's something we need to work on daily, isn't it? Um, One idea, don't have to do this, just an idea, uh, might be to have a personal audit of your bank transactions, maybe over the past month. And just as you do that, ask yourself this question. Does my spending pattern and the things I'm investing in show that God is my master? So there you go. You you don't need a private wealth manager. After all, you've got Luke 16. And in the context of eternity, earthly wealth in and of itself, Jesus says, is pretty meaningless. It will fade. But here is the brilliant investment advice from him. If you want to be truly shrewd, swap your earthly wealth for riches that will last into eternity. Use it to make friends for yourself in eternity. Use it to demonstrate you can be trusted with spiritual responsibility. Use it in worship to your one true master. I want to leave you with a quote from the great theologian, A.W. Tozer. You can tell he's great because he's known by his initials. And if you're able to fight through the old school language, then, then he has something golden to say. So just listen to this. As base a thing as money often is, yet it, be, it can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself, that's transform itself, into uh, heavenly values. Any temporal possession 
can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Friends, my prayer for myself and for each of us today is that we'll be people that entrust to Christ our earthly possessions and say to him, Lord, take my fading wealth and turn it into everlasting riches. Amen.